Good morning. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, and we are now moving into the time in our service where we will get into the Word of God and exposit it and look at uh, how we can apply it to our lives. And we are excited right now. We have a lot going on in the church. You heard this morning, community groups are starting again next week, so I do want to encourage you, if you're not part of one, to sign up. And we have a lot of other things that are happening. We have the parking lot expansion project that's going on right now. This past week, we had uh, Kids for Truth. We have 70 kids registered for that. For community groups, we have over 250 people, adults and children, registered. Um, So there's a lot going on here in this church. Uh, If you're a guest with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. We see new guests coming to our church each week. And we have teens just a couple weeks ago, get baptized to publicly declare their faith in Christ. And there's a lot to thank God for that's going on in this church. And I don't know if you recognize this or not, but our church is a very healthy church. That's a good thing. So why do we see these things happening? What do we attribute to that good health that we have in this church? Is it the gift bags that we give to the guests? Is it uh, a cool logo? Is it because our pastors are hip and relevant and dress really cool? (laughs) Is it the featured coffee flavors at the cafe? I I don't think it is those things. One of the marks of a healthy church is unity. And I believe that practicing unity is something that our church does very well. You should be encouraged by that. And it's resulted in God's blessing for us. And that's not to say that we're getting something right here in the church. It just shows that we're, we're being faithful. As a people, we're being faithful to God's command to us to maintain that unity. God desires for unity among his people. In John chapter 17, Christ prays for his followers he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. The Lord desires that his people, that his church, would be united because that unity reflects the oneness that Christ has with the Father. It reflects the unity that is found within the Trinity. So we want to look at this idea of unity within the body of Christ today as we get into Psalm 133. So let's pray and then we'll get into God's word. God, we thank you for your word, for its truth. We pray that this morning that you would speak to us from the scripture. We know it is living and active. We know that you have the ability through it to divide soul and spirit. So draw things out of it this morning that we need to see, that we be encouraged in the unity that we have, and that we would continue to pursue you in that unity. We pray for open ears and open hearts to receive your word. And let only what is true be heard here this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
So we're talking about unity, specifically biblical unity today. And when we look back at Christ's prayer in John 17, we recognize that it is important to have this unity. It is important to God that his people, that his church, be united in its purpose and its mission. Unity is essential for God's people. And there are a lot of ideas on what unity is in the world. There are even some Christians who seek to create unity in ways that are contrary or that would compromise on the truths in God's word. The world tells us that we can achieve unity by promoting tolerance, by agreeing to disagree, putting aside our values and beliefs in order to conform to a different standard, even if it contradicts the word of God, because what is most important is achieving unity. So if you have to compromise on what you believe, then that's okay. But true unity, biblical unity, is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about unity, we mean the unity of the people of God, bound to one another, and bound to the one true God by the gospel, and bound to one another, and bound to God through the work and person of Jesus Christ. In God, all who are true believers have that unity. Everyone who is born again has unity with one another and unity with God through the Holy Spirit. True biblical unity is a spiritual unity. We have oneness in spirit with Christ and with one another. That's what scripture says. Scripture tells us that this unity means that we are one in affection, we are one in judgment, and we are one in purpose. Biblical unity is not setting aside our differences for the sake of an abstract idea. It is about having a oneness with Christ and with his church and holding fast to what is true. As Christians, there, there may be even things that we would want to divide over, be tempted to divide over within the church. And there are certainly things that we can disagree about, but we can't compromise on the gospel. The gospel is what unites us. Unity is something that God desires for all of his people. So we're going to look at Psalm 133 with the hope that we can take encouragement from this psalm today by looking at the blessing of unity. So we'll read the entire psalm. It's only three verses. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. So we notice, first of all, that this is a song of ascents. And there are 15 songs of ascents in the Psalms, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 135. And these Psalms were traditionally sung by Hebrew pilgrims as they were traveling to Jerusalem for the uh, different festivals that happened throughout the year. There was uh, Pentecost, there was uh, the Passover, and there was the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy 16 describes these different festivals or these different feasts, and God tells his people that they are to attend each one of those festivals. So they would be traveling to Jerusalem three times a year. 
So three times a year, they would travel together, entire families, parents and children and brothers and cousins and second cousins and third cousins twice removed, even in-laws. They'd all travel together to Jerusalem. One people traveling together in unity, and they would make the journey to these festivals, and they would sing these songs of ascents on the way. The tribes would sing these psalms as they ascended to Jerusalem. And that's not really an uncommon thing. If you've ever taken a road trip, you have your mixtape that you take, you know, you put it in the car and your cassette player. Right, kids? You have a mix, right? Or how many of you have taken a, a trip as a group and you sing songs on the way on a bus trip or something like that? So it's really not that uncommon that they would sing these songs as they traveled. Maybe they even did rounds. I don't know. These songs were meant to encourage these pilgrims as they traveled, as they physically ascended towards Jerusalem. And they also sang these songs because they addressed a longing that they had for peace and prosperity and for the hopeful expectation of the Messiah. So again, these songs of ascents are found in Psalm 120 to 135, and they were sung in that order, so as they... uh, drew closer to Jerusalem, they would be probably around the point of Psalm 133. And the significance of there being 15, this is trivia, 15 of these songs of ascents is because the festivals would take place on the 15th day of the month on the Hebrew calendar. There were also 15 steps that led from the lower court to the upper court in the temple. So that is why there's 15 songs of ascents. For us today, we're probably not going to travel to Jerusalem three times a year, but we can still find encouragement in these psalms. We ascend near to God in unity as we worship him, and he draws near to us. Now, this psalm is written by David. David is the one that would be anointed king of Israel, and it would be from his lineage that the Messiah would come. But David's journey to the throne, you know, was not easy. Throughout the early years of Israel, there was no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes, Scripture says. So to mediate that, the nation had judges over them. And one of the most notable and honorable judges was Samuel. Scripture says that the Lord was with Samuel. It says that when Samuel became old that he made his sons judges over Israel, but they did not follow God. They did not walk with the Lord, and the Lord was not with his sons. So the elders of Israel came to Samuel, and they said, we want a king like the other nations have. So despite Samuel's warnings, the people still demanded a king. So God granted their request, and a man named Saul was appointed king over Israel. And we see in the book of 1 Samuel that the Lord eventually rejected Saul because Saul was not walking with the Lord. He did not keep his commandments. And in 1 Samuel 16, God tells Samuel to anoint someone else king. He tells him to go to a man named Jesse, and one of Jesse's sons would be anointed king. And the eighth son of Jesse, David, is the one that would be anointed king. Now, David was just a boy. He was a shepherd for his father, but he was the one that would be anointed king. Now, initially, David found much favor 
with Saul. He would comfort him when he was troubled with music. But after David became famous for slaying Goliath, Saul became jealous of David. He began to resent him. But Israel and Judah loved David. Saul was jealous. He even tried to kill David. David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he spared his life because David loved Saul. And even when Saul died, David mourned his death. Now, when Saul died, David was anointed king, but only king over the tribe of Judah. The remaining tribes had a different king, a man named Ishbosheth, which I have to say slower, I'll mess it up. Son of Saul was made king over the remaining tribes of Israel. And he was made king by a man named Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army. And Abner was very influential in the life of Ishbosheth and his rule. Eventually, there was a long civil war between the house of David and the house of Saul. And during this war, the house of David became stronger and the house of, da- the house of Saul became weaker. And after a rift between Abner and Ishbosheth, Abner made a covenant with David. Now, some people in David's house were suspicious of this, particularly Joab, because he felt like Abner was trying to deceive him. Now, Joab already had something against Abner because Abner had killed Joab's brother in the battle of uh, Gibeon, which was kind of the catalyst for the civil war. So he wanted revenge. So Joab killed Abner. And that's not what David wanted. He didn't want Abner to be killed, and he mourned the death of Abner. Soon after, Ishbosheth's death is recorded, and David would finally be anointed as king over all of Israel. But again, the journey to the throne was filled with strife. It was filled with jealousy and betrayal and division of God's people. There was a civil war where family members were fighting against one another. And David, being a man after God's own heart, desired to see God's people unified. He had a longing for God's people to dwell together in unity. And so when he became king over all of Israel and he saw the people unified and they experienced that peace and prosperity, he celebrated it by writing this song. And he tells us about the satisfaction of this unity in verse one. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. He begins the psalm with the word behold. And that's a word that we see often in scripture and is meant to call our attention to something important. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. There's something special going on here. When we see this word, it means that there is something unique that is happening and it is worthy of our attention. So the Holy Spirit is calling for us to focus on what is going to be written here. He wants us to focus on the satisfaction of unity. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is satisfying. It is satisfying to God, and it is satisfying to his people. David, the one who was chosen to be king, he experienced division leading up to the throne. Civil war, opposition. But he longed for a unity of God's people. 
he's now experiencing that and reflecting on how good and pleasant that unity is. So how is unity good and pleasant? First of all, God is the one who creates unity, and God is good. So true unity must be a good thing. Biblical unity is a good thing. He sent his son to unite God's people together under Christ, who is the head, and unite them to himself through his death and resurrection. Christ made peace with God on our behalf so that we could be united with him. It was God's will to unite all things in Christ. So it is the will of God for us to be united. It is a good thing. God is the author of our unity, and Christ is the goal of our unity. So it must be a very good thing. Secondly, we see not only is unity good, but it is pleasant. It is pleasing. It is pleasing to both God and his people. Unity is pleasing to God. He is the God of peace, so it pleases him when his people live peaceably with one another. And we don't have to look any further than this passage to recognize that. This is written by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So God himself is declaring in this verse that unity is pleasing. Unity is also pleasant to God's people. David, again, he's observing this unity of God's people. And again, the, the song was, the song of ascent was sung on their way to Jerusalem, and this is getting closer to Jerusalem as they're singing this song. So they're ascending on Jerusalem, and they're preparing for the culmination, for the festival, when all of God's people would gather together as one to celebrate the redemption of God's people. It was pleasant to them to sing these songs, to gather together, to have a feast. This word that's used here for pleasant is used in Scripture also to describe the sweetness of honey or the harmony of music. It is pleasant. You think about pleasure, right? Same root word. It's meant to bring positive excitement to our senses, the sweetness of honey, the harmony of music. Unity in Christ is something that we are meant to enjoy. We should realize also that it's not only pleasant to God and pleasant to us, but it's pleasant to those outside the body of Christ. Jesus tells his disciples that the world will know they are his disciples by their love for one another. In the prayer that we looked at in John 17, Christ prays that they would be one as he and the Father are one, that the world would know that the Father sent him to be the Savior of the world. This unity has an attractiveness to it. When outsiders witness the peace and the love that exists within gospel community, it's an invitation to be part of what God is doing. And that's our approach to first impressions. Our guest services team, our ushers, our parking attendants, those of you who serve on election day, those who serve in our food pantry, those of you who made the sacrifice to park in the shuttle lot so that we can make room for more, there's a unity that exists here. It demonstrates that there's an understanding that we are all, as one, part of something bigger. And the joy that our teams show as they are serving, as they are sacrificing, 
And the genuine love that we show for one another and for our guests is pleasant and it attracts people to Christ. That's what we want. We want people to be attracted to Christ through our unity. Now notice, it is not just unity itself that is good and pleasant, but it is good and pleasant when God's people dwell in unity. In Christ, we all have unity. We are united in Christ. That is a spiritual truth. Even when we leave this place, we will have that unity. It will still exist. But how much more good and pleasant is it when we can experience that unity in person together? Not just the occasional meetings. How good and pleasant is it when brothers, when members of God's family, dwell together in unity. And this word dwell has a sense of something that is ongoing. You arrive at a place and you settle there. You dwell together. That's why we encourage participation in community groups. That's why we have ministry activities happening throughout the week. Why we have church picnics and kids ministry movie nights and things like that. That's why we're called Fellowship Church. Because the fellowship that we have the fellowship that we have with God and with one another is a good thing, and we want to take advantage of every opportunity to meet together, to continue fellowshipping in unity, to dwell together in unity, to maintain that unity and to grow in it. We must enjoy this unity. So to help us better understand the true goodness of this unity that we are called to in Christ, David provides us with two illustrations first illustration we see in verse 2 helps us to recognize that we are set apart to unity. He says that this unity, dwelling together in unity, is like the precious oil on the head, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron. Leviticus 8 tells us how God commanded Moses to take Aaron and his sons and consecrate them for priesthood. Aaron was the high priest of God's people, and it says in Leviticus 8 that he, Moses, poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So when God was instituting the sacrificial system for his people, the first step was to consecrate Aaron as the high priest, to set him apart for the service of priesthood. And God gave Moses this recipe for the oil in Exodus chapter 30. And this oil was very precious. It was, it was not to be used for any other purpose than for the consecration of Aaron and for the elements that would be used in the sacrifice. God even says that anyone who tried to make something like it would be cut off from his people. So there wasn't like a knockoff consecration body spray that you can go to CVS and get. Actually sounds like a good cologne, consecration. <laughs> now the difference between Aaron and, and these elements is that the tabernacle, the altar, and the utensils that were used for the sacrifice, Moses sprinkled them with oil. But it says that for Aaron, Moses poured the oil on Aaron. There was literally over a gallon and a half of oil that he had. 
So I don't know how much some of the oil was poured, but I'm guessing it was a significant amount. And so we see this picture here in Psalm 133, the precious oil used only for this sacred purpose. It's poured over his head. It runs down his beard, runs down the collars of his robes. He's soaked in this oil. Why? To be consecrated, to be set apart for God's purpose. So I want you to see Aaron here today as a picture of the body of Christ, and this oil is God's spirit poured out on his people to unite them under his headship, to make them holy, to set them apart for his purpose. Aaron had priestly garments, which included a breast piece that had 12 stones on it, and on each one of those stones was written the name of a tribe of Israel. So when this oil was poured, each tribe, all of God's people represented in those stones, would be covered in this oil and set apart in Aaron as their mediator. God's grace is comprehensive and has the ability to unite in Christ. He is our great high priest and perfect mediator between God and man. And he made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf as our high priest so that we could be made holy, that we could be set apart in him. Now within the body of Christ, keeping with that imagery, there are many parts. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us each believer is baptized it, by the Holy Spirit, into one body. And even though there are different parts with different functions within the body, the hand, the eye, the feet, God is the one who composed the body. And his intention is for each part to complement the others as we function together as one, and that there would be unity in the body, that there would not be division. God put the body together. He united us. He gave us different gifts and different functions so that we might be used to glorify God together. Just as Aaron in his body was anointed with the oil, we are given the Holy Spirit that we would use our gifts as one body to serve the Lord. We've been set apart, we've been consecrated for service to the Lord, that we would serve him together as one. Now this oil that is poured, it would have produced a very sweet fragrance that filled the air. The pleasantness of the oil excites the senses. And it's the same with unity in the body of Christ. It is good, it is pleasant, it is attractive. And so we are called out and set apart to be united in Christ in order to carry out his purpose together, to be a witness to the world, to attract people to Christ through that unity. And that is pleasing to God. You think about the, the fragrance of the oil. It is, it is something that is pleasing, right? It is pleasing to God when we are united together. So when we get together as a church, it is for his purpose. We cannot fulfill God's purpose for his church if we're lacking in unity. Our unity is used by God to carry out his purpose because he united us for his purpose. Our gathering together to worship, our weekly studies designed for growth, our teams that serve together in our ministries, when we are doing those things, it should have the sweet aroma of unity. Ephesians 2 says that we, 
God's people are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared for us in advance. It does not say that each one of you is God's workmanship and God gave you good works. It says that we are his workmanship. He gave us good works. We are created, we are made new and united in Christ for what? For good works that he prepared for us in advance. We are united, called out for his purpose. Two weeks ago, we had a huge need for people to serve in kids' ministry. And in one Sunday, that need was met. That happens when the people are united, when they are of one mind, and they are serving God with the same purpose, when they have a desire to fulfill that purpose in his church. We are bonded together under one Lord, having one faith and one purpose to glorify him and to make his name known. So our unity must be a defining marker because it is a defining marker of a church that loves the Lord and cares about the gospel. A church that loves the Lord and cares about the gospel will be a unified church. That is how we're going to accomplish our mission to make disciples and glorify the Lord. That's what we want to strive to do. That's our passion at Fellowship Church. Now, the next illustration that David gives us is brought to us by Mountain Dew. (laughs) He says, It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in Israel. It's mentioned a few times in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 3, Joshua would would lead the forces of Israel against Og uh, in order to reclaim the promised land. And we see in there that uh, the mountain range of Hermon was used to define the parameters of the promised land. So it's a huge mountain range. Here in Psalm 133, the dew of Mount Hermon is used as an analogy for the goodness of unity. Mount Hermon is also known as the snowy mountain. It's covered in snow in the winter. And it has the climate to produce the right conditions for there to be a constant uh, dew. It produces the right dew point uh, to form. And so there's perpetual dew on Mount Hermon. So it feeds all the streams and rivers and everything is green around that mountain. So the, the picture here that David gives us is of a heavy perpetual dew. Now you know dew is crucial for vegetation to grow in the dry season. But it is said that even in a dry season, the dew of Hermon is so copious that the Israelites would wake up to tents that were soaking wet and it would seem like it rained all night. We've experienced that. You go outside in the morning, there's dew drops in your car, the grass is wet. You think, oh, did it rain last night? Now notice here that the goodness and pleasantness of unity is compared not to the dew of Mount Hermon on Mount Hermon, but it's likened to the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. Mount Zion is a hill in Jerusalem. Compared to Hermon, Hermon is 9,000 feet above sea level. Zion is 2,400 feet above sea level. There's very little dew, very little moisture at all in Jerusalem in the summer months. And year-round, Jerusalem gets one to two inches of rainfall. So it's very dry. If you were to look it up, it's 
we'll probably say that it's sweltering right now if you look up the weather in Jerusalem. Don't do it right now, but I'm just saying it's probably really hot there. So David is saying that when God's people dwell together in unity, it's like a heavy dew that falls on a hot, dry land. It is refreshing. It cools the air. It helps produce growth. Unity in the body of Christ is meant to produce growth. Our vision is to be a growing church, and that doesn't mean numerical growth. It means that we as a church want to grow spiritually so that each person becomes more like Christ. And unity is essential for that sanctification process. We are sanctified through unity. Ephesians 4 speaks to this. Paul writes, and he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So unity sanctifies us. So we looked at the setting apart to unity and the setting apart of the sanctification through unity. And finally, we see that the source of unity is here in verse three. For the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. In both of these illustrations that David used, There's a downward movement. The oil is poured over Aaron's head and flows downward. The dew falls downward on the mountain. And this word that's used for running down, it's the same word in verse two and verse three for falling and running down. And it helps us get this picture of something coming from above downward on God's people. God is the source of the unity that we experience. And God is the one who commands the blessing where unity and peace among God's people is being cultivated. God sent his spirit to descend on his people, to unite us. And when we practice unity with other believers, God will bless us. For there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, in the midst of God's people, he commanded his blessing. Think again about the benefits of dew how refreshing that is to the land. For those of you who were part of this church pre-pandemic, which would be any time before 2020, think about how refreshing it was in 2020 after we had been separated from one another for months and we came back together. How good was that? How refreshing was that? Yes, we are united in spirit in Christ. But to be able to participate in that unity together, to dwell in unity, was very much needed. And we felt that. Now, since we've come back together, we've seen God do amazing things in this church. And all glory is due him for that. Now, I heard a statistic Uh, not that long ago, and I I don't know how accurate it is, but then again, 82% of statistics are made up on the spot. (laughs) 
it says that only 6% of evangelical churches in the United States have experienced growth post-COVID. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. If, if it is, that is uh, alarming and um, discouraging. But it, it makes you think, if it is true, why are we blessed to be part of that 6%? A question that we've asked ourselves around church staff is, why is our church growing? And there are a lot of answers to that, many of which I believe are right and true, especially if Pastor Mark says it. But one thing that we can know for sure is that when God's people dwell together in unity, he blesses it. This church started from a home Bible study over 40 years ago, and God is continuing to work here to conform each person to the image of Christ. And that is happening because so many of you are faithful to the call to be unified, to maintain that unity in Christ. God will continue to give life and strength to his people when they seek to dwell together in unity. And so we must not forget that God is the source of that unity. We don't create it on our own. We don't maintain it without him. We must recognize that he is the source of our unity. So to recap, here, here's the encouragement that we have from this passage. First, unity is satisfying to God and his people. It is pleasant. It is good. Enjoy it. Enjoy the unity that we have. Consider how this unity benefits all of us who are in Christ. It is good to be part of a church where there is unity around Christ and his gospel. That should always be our focus. And when it is, we will always enjoy that unity. And if you're tempted to create division, whether that's through gossiping, maybe you have resentment against somebody else, maybe you are tempted to accuse somebody of something and assume their motives, ask God to help you with that. God hates division, He hates division. If you pray for help, the Spirit will lead you away from that. God desires unity among his people. And it is something that is to be enjoyed by us. Second, remember that we are set apart to unity for a purpose. God designed his church with many members. And each one of us is unique with specific gifts that he has given to individuals to serve him for the sake of building up his church. And there is diversity among us and among our gifts, but he has united us together in Christ so that we can work together for the same purpose, to use our gifts to make disciples, to build his church for his glory. And if you're not already serving in a ministry you're missing out on the blessing of unity. You're missing out on fulfilling your purpose within this community. I'd encourage you to step out and serve. Serve alongside other believers and you'll be blessed. Third, unity is essential to sanctification. 
those who are in Christ should seek to grow spiritually, to work out our salvation daily and allow God to sanctify us. And if that is what we desire, because that is something that we are called to, then we must let unity with other believers be part of that process. So we must seek opportunities to dwell together in unity for the sake of our own sanctification. And that is why we offer various ways that each person can be a part of how God is working in this church. And we offer these opportunities for you to do that alongside other people. We are a community of believers, and God desires for us to dwell together in unity because that unity produces growth. He will use that unity for our sanctification. So make it a practice to continue to be engaged in fellowship opportunities. It's not just something for us to do because it's an alternative to what's happening in the community. It's to help us realize our vision of being a growing church. Finally, remember again, God is the source of true biblical unity. We can't manufacture it. We cannot fake biblical unity. God must be the source. We must depend on him for that unity. We are united in Christ by the Holy Spirit, and it is only through him that we're able to maintain that unity and dwell in that unity in a way that glorifies him. So we have to look to him as the source of that unity and depend on him in faith. And once again, it's been amazing to watch God work in our church over the past few years. And we're excited to see so many new faces, to have dozens of kids, to have uh, so many people participating in community groups, to have a new parking lot. But without unity among God's people, there would not be much value in those things. Programs alone, projects alone, don't give people a purpose. Our unity in Christ gives us a purpose. A beautiful facility that we can gather in. If we don't have unity, then it's not a beautiful facility. It's just a big room. When it is filled with people who are united in Christ, that is what makes it beautiful. The psalm concludes that the blessing of God is life forevermore. Christ has given us eternal life, and we are united in him. The fellowship that we experience today is through the Holy Spirit. And as beautiful as that is, as beautiful as it is to worship together, to fellowship, this is simply a glimpse of what we will experience in heaven forever. So we practice that unity today and we make every effort to maintain it because it is a blessing from God that we will experience together forever. Unity in Christ is not only blessed by God, but unity is the blessing. Be encouraged today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for bringing us together under Christ as one body 
as one people with the purpose to glorify you, to enjoy you, to enjoy fellowship with one another, to be one as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. Help us to live in unity with one another. We humbly pray for your blessing upon that. We ask that you would refine us, that you would help us to put off those things that would create division. Help us to seek unity. Unity with one another through Jesus Christ. We can depend only on you for that. We can't do it on our own. We know that it is what you desire for us, that it is good and pleasant. So we pray that the unity that we experience today would be pleasing to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.